landscapes that Watkins introduces into the canon have been acted on by state and federal governments. You know, the conservation of Yosemite, the establishment of protections for the California coast, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, the Columbia River Gorge. These are all places that Watkins made prominent and made people care enough about to right. act on. Welcome to the November 8th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. Tyler Green may be best known as the journalist behind Modern Art Notes, something he started as a widely read blog on the topic of art in museums almost 20 years ago. That has since morphed into a podcast of the same name that just published its 365th episode. But for the last six years, Green has been researching the renowned 19th century photographer, Carlton Watkins, who's an important figure in American art, since his images of Yosemite National Park and other pockets of the natural world in the American West continue to inspire with their sublime beauty. The book Green created is quite an achievement. At over 450 pages, it's an exhaustive study But the interesting part is what Watkins left behind in the form of records, which is very little. So it fascinated me to think how Green was able to reconstruct the life of a man whose records no longer exist. I invited him to the studio to talk about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that destroyed Watkins' studio, his photographs of Native Americans, what Green sees as Watkins' cultural unionism, as he terms it, the photographer's relationship with science, and an unexpected personal story that made Green realize that the story was probably a lot more personal than he initially thought. I started by asking him about the earthquake that changed Watkins' life forever. The 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire is you know, the single most dramatic event in the history of the American West. I mean, the gold rush is probably more impactful, but not as, you know, nothing changed in 90 seconds like Mm -hmm. it did in (laughs) 1906. At the time, Watkins is an elderly man. He's about 76 years old. He is, he's mostly blind. He's living on um, the second or third story of a building somewhere in San Francisco. We're not sure where, but probably not far from where City Hall is now. And this just massive earthquake hits. Watkins is living with his everything, his mm-hmm. his glass plate negatives, hundreds of them, uh, his notebooks, his correspondence, his any other paper he would have had. And the uh, and there's a very famous picture of him wearing just a coat and a hat and kind of struggling to walk down the street. Yeah, I saw that. It's an incredible. People. I mean, who who had the you know the mind to take that photograph at that time? Watkins is. Um, so Watkins is married at this point. His wife is mostly living in somewhere else in California, yeah. and, and he kind of goes back and forth a little bit, we think. But Watkins always thought he could sell pictures and wanted to be in San Francisco where the sales might be. His guardian, if you will, I guess to use a contemporary term, is a man named Charles Beebe Terrell, who was mm. uh, a photographer himself, a railroad promoter, worked for, for the Southern Pacific. And he was the first 20th century Californian to realize how important Watkins' pictures were, and he was trying to move them into collections, the states mm. and things like that. And and so he, as a photographer, probably, I mean, we don't know who took the picture, but it's probably Trill, probably thought it was a pretty historic moment and snapped it. 
it's just crazy because you see the photo with like buildings burning in the burning. background so much smoke and, yeah so, much, so smoke much smoke and this i mean you know to get him sort of like in that moment it's almost i mean it, it looks and, almost like a news photo you know you know oh very much yeah. i mean and and Obviously, this is a little bit reading into a picture about which we don't know an enormous amount. But we do know Watkins was almost or entirely blind by then. Mm. Um, and you know how when somebody calls your name from across a distance and you know someone's calling, so you're looking right. for the voice? Watkins's head, which is not exactly aligned with his body, looks like it's doing that. Got so it. it's easy to read that in. So everything Watkins has is is destroyed. And then a day or two before the earthquake and fire, all of his, um, all of the pictures he owned, both his and other people's, he probably had a pretty good paintings collection. Um, oh, Eastern wow. painters would yeah. travel on the transcontinental and trade pictures with him. There's lots of correspondence or a good bit of correspondence about this kind of thing at the Archives of American Art and in other archives. Is there a list? Is there some no. sort of... No, there is no but inventory. Some, but some no. artists who left behind like diaries, like, like, uh, like James D. Smilly, who was best known as, as a printmaker, as a lithographer, mm-hmm. left behind a very detailed diary in which he talks a lot about Watkins' pictures um, oh, wow. and, and talks about what he traded Watkins. Um, so it all, it all goes up. Two or three days before the earthquake and fire, the very new Leland Stanford Junior University, and now we don't know it so much as a junior university, right? <laughs> I mean, Leland Stanford Junior was after whom the school was named, was set to acquire hundreds of these pictures, maybe all of them, as art, as as art objects. Why? Two things. Um, the museum at Stanford was was started by by Leland and Jane Stanford, and was just the most, you know, it, it was a stuff closet, right? And so they had lots of Moybridges because Moybridge was kind of Leland's photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the famous photographs of animal locomotion; those all came yeah, out of, of Moybridge's work for Stanford. So this curator at Stanford, no doubt influenced a little bit by Terrell, um, realizes their importance. And of course, Watkins, all of his career mm-hmm. is making pictures that he intends to be considered in the context of painting of the finest art form, right. of the finest American art form at that point, because sculpture in America was you know, distant. The guy at Stanford got that mm-hmm. and had lined up to acquire them all um, and was sending a guy, a couple guys to pick them up. I think, what, a day or two after the earthquake hit? instead, So as a result, we have only, you know, 20 or 30 pieces of paper by, by Watkins' hand. About half of them, or maybe a little more, are... 20 let- and 30? That's it? Yeah. And half of them or more are letters to his wife from Arizona in 1880, in which he complains about the heat. Wow. So they're, they're lovely, but they're not terribly useful. Do we have a lot of correspondence <laughs> from him, though? I mean, he didn't have correspondence with people around the world? or he, he, he surely did. I mean, this is an era when the correspondence that people save. So take Asa Gray, a, a botanist at Harvard, right. who acquired scores, probably hundreds of Watkinses, for teaching and enjoyment at yeah. Harvard. Uh, Gray saves only really the correspondence with other botanists. Uh, so he doesn't, uh, right. um, and, and that's fairly common mm-hmm. in, uh, in the time. papers. Yeah, yeah, like Frederick Billings, who's the first important philanthropist of landscape conservation in America, and who was in California for the beginning of Watkins's career and indeed helped start it. Billings saves his correspondence with his family. In fact, his correspondence with his wife is one of, you know, one of my favorite. I mean, it was really great to read. 
but not not with anybody he considered below his professional tier. Gotcha. And his professional tier was narrowly defined. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So let's talk about Asa Gray because there is something there that you don't quite make the, you know, definitive statement, but you do point out that there are possible connections there that that probably need maybe some more research or maybe we'll never know to be quite honest my guess is we'll never know okay but you but you know documents pop up who knows so um, asa gray was at harvard he's one of the people that's brought darwinism to the united states the guy he, the guy and he was a big fan of watkins photographs and had a collection of hundreds of them like you said he and harvard did yeah, yeah. harvard throughout several hundred of them about so 30 what, years ago. So what do you think Watkins' contribution to that conversation was? I mean, clearly there must have been other photographers too. Not really. And, no. and, and okay. I mean, there, there are other photographers in the West, but nobody's working on the scale Watkins is. Gotcha. I mean, Watkins designs and builds the largest camera in the world in 1861, and that's the one he takes to Yosemite for those famous pictures. And nobody w works at that scale until at least about 1867 or so. Asa Gray was one of America's first great scientists, if not our first great homegrown scientist. He was a botanist. He taught at Harvard. The taxonomy and indexification, if you will, of plants that is still used right. by scientists in the United States today is based on Gray's work. Um, he was a titan. And so in the early 1860s, late 1850s, when California is realizing it needs to do something someday beyond pulling ore out of the ground. Right. It starts a scientific, a state-funded scientific project called the California Geological Survey, which surveyed a lot more than geology. Right. And the two scientists who, who run it and who are the field director for it are a couple of Yale-trained scientists named Josiah Whitney and William Brewer. And, of course, they all want to make their bones in California and then go back east and work at Harvard or Yale. Right. And so these guys are trying to correspond with their peers on the East Coast in the early 1860s about the flora and fauna of California. And, and so there's this great letter that Brewer writes to Gray in which he talks about having just been to Mount Shasta, which is 14,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And Shasta is very dramatic. It's a, it's a pyramidal looking yep. thing, cone. And you can very clearly, even when you're not on it, see the tree line and see right. that nothing grows above a certain level. And so Brewer writes a letter to Gray and says, you know, nothing grows up above like 9,000 feet, not even lichens. And Gray writes him this letter back and he says, I doubt that's true, young man, but I don't want to harm your reputation, so I just won't tell anybody that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, uh, the East did not know about the West. And so uh, the California scientists quickly realized, I mean, immediately realized upon seeing Watkins's pictures, here's something that we can use to show our peers in the east what is here in the west mm -hmm. and it begins a conversation between watkins's work and american science that continues for the rest of his career there are four key species of trees that yeah. that are part of gray's contribution to darwin's theory not just the reception of it in the u.s yeah. but the theory itself and watkins photographs all four uh, shortly after coming into contact with gray and we don't know how that impacts the theory boy did i look but yeah. it was certainly engaged in it so this brings up the whole his relationship because you know you mentioned he built the world's largest camera there's so much science and sort of uh, involved in this particularly photography during this period was really chemistry in many ways so what was that relationship between science and what Watkins was doing, and maybe photography in general in that period? There, you know, there's a great show up at the New York Public Library right now that kind of 
is the on-ramp for photography in, into science. It's an Anna Atkins exhibition about the pictures she made of algae. Right. So Atkins makes these, these pictures of algae, many, 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 many yeah, species of, of algae, yeah. hundreds. And Atkins either stops making the pictures or dies, I forget which, in 1861, which right. is exactly when Watkins starts uh, mm-hmm. at Yosemite. So before this point, the relationship between science and art had, for the previous several generations, had been one of illustration, most famously in like botanical illustration. Right. So for Asa Gray, you know, one of the reasons he was able to, um, so for somebody who was taxonomizing all of the, or many of the plants in North America, you wanted to be able to show people the plants. So he had an illustrator named Isaac Sprague, who was a phenomenal illustrator, who would make drawings of these things that Gray had collected, flowers, branches, leaves. Mm-hmm. So there was a context for visual creators and artists to contribute to science. Where Watkins comes in is things that are too big for scientists to, you know, for a drawing of a leaf to be enormously meaningful. Like a drawing of a leaf is great for flowers and for agricultural crops. But when you're talking about like giant sequoias. Right. And landscapes. And yeah, it's a whole different, a whole different thing. Watkins's pictures were also. He gives context. Huge. I mean, literal size oriented context the trees in the west were bigger than anything in the east anybody then alive had seen that's incredible Um, so what's the first watkins photograph you remember seeing mm, oh it would have had to have been a yosemite picture i mean so i grew up in san francisco Mm -hmm. and i mean watkins exists in san francisco as part of the city's visual fabric the way pollock does in new york it's just that people don't always know they're Watkinses. I mean, I was looking at a book last night and there's a Watkins picture on the cover and it's sort of misidentified and where the collection that holds it was misidentified on the jacket of the book. I mean, which is a yeah. classic Watkins And you story. see Watkins photos in people's homes in San Francisco and like little shops selling like postcards. You know, it's, it, they're kind of everywhere. Stereographs. Yeah, stereographs you can go too. through yeah, Gold yeah. Rush country in, in, yeah. in San Francisco and um, all those little antique stores have Watkins stereographs. Yeah, it's incredible. That they've jacked way up. Um, yeah. You can find them on eBay for a lot less. <laughs> um, Good advice. The other ones I really remember seeing, um, I guess a little after I was a kid, when I was young, my family went hiking at this lake in, in southwest of Tahoe called uh, Silver Lake. And, you know, we got a cabin there every summer for a couple of weeks and, and we'd go hiking. And one of the hikes I liked best was this hike to a lake called Winnemucca. Now, Silver Lake, by the way, was probably painted and certainly made into a litho after a Bierstadt, either illustration or painting, which I only discovered after I'd written the book um, <laughs> to the Library of Congress. And we go to Winnemucca and this really kind of not pretty mountain above it, round top. But it was my favorite hike as a kid. It was not, I mean, you know, when you're 10 years old, it it seemed about the right difficulty level. And the mountain wasn't super pretty, but it was super dramatic. And and Watkins in 1879, this is the cover of the book, in fact, makes pictures at Winnemucca and round top. They're some of the very, very few pictures made from a mountaintop in America in the 19th century. Right. Well, William Henry Jackson makes some pictures from a ridge, but that's really about it. So I guess those are the two. And who was Watkins looking at? I mean, Bierstadt, clearly, there's probably a little bit of that there. I mean, who else was he looking at? Because, you know, when you're working in a new medium, you're often working, like, with other examples in your head or perhaps something you've seen. Any clues? Yeah, this is one of the great textual mysteries, but I think pictorially, and I tried pictorially throughout the book to try to figure that out. So when Watkins is beginning as a photographer in the late 1850s Mm -hmm. and early 1860s, 
painting in California is not advanced. Got it. Um, it's a little bit lower level. There are painters, but they're really not particularly good. Watkins is fortunate enough to find himself caught up in the only intellectual circle in the West. It's headed by uh, Jesse Benton Fremont, the wife and brains behind John C. Fremont, the 1856 Republican presidential nominee and the great explorer, early explorer of Mm -hmm. the American West. And the head of this intellectual circle was a Boston-born preacher named Thomas Starr King, who was an acolyte of, of Ralph Waldo Emerson and is really the first intellectual in California. And Starr loved painting and poetry, probably collected, certainly collected poetry. I mean, he travels the White Mountains with painters. He knows painters. My best guess is that, and I'm you know fairly as confident as you can be about this without textual mm-hmm. material, that it's Starr King who introduces Watkins to painting, um, mostly it. through prints, and then also ideas about landscape and nature through Emerson. So, you know, even in the early 1860s, when California mm-hmm. is just 10 or 12 or 13 years old, San Francisco is a preposterously wealthy port city. You know, the mountains are belching out gold. People got money to spend. So print dealers in New York and London and Paris, everybody's sending prints and soon paintings to San Francisco. So from the start, Watkins would have had access to that. And the people who buy his work, we know some of the things they had that he probably would have seen. So at the beginning that way, and then he meets Bierstadt in uh, in 63. They they become fast frenemies. Bierstadt returns to California in what, 71, 72, 73, something like that. And they would have had the opportunity to to, um, catch up. And probably, you know, I don't think they were close, but their work suggests they definitely kept an eye on each other right, throughout. Right, right. And then as California's matures um, economically, it attracts good artists like William Keith, who's probably the right. first important painter of California. Thomas Hill, who I think is a lot better than he gets credit for. Thomas Hill might be the most important 19th century painter who's never really gotten the full retrospective treatment. I mean, Keith is on that list, too. A lot of Hill's work burned in 1906. Got it. Um, which makes so it tough. Do it. So eventually Watkins did have painters to converse with. As far as photographers, he and Moybridge don't seem to have... I mean, he uh, Moybridge talks to Watkins in his work. Watkins talks to Moybridge a teeny bit. But after the 1860s, they don't seem to have been particularly close. But we don't really know. That's so There's no indication yeah. that they were. And so one of the ideas... Well, I also like the fact that you're talking about that period because really his work, and I think Part of because there wasn't a lot of textual information, you had to contextualize so much and understand it within this bigger lens of the era and the geography. And you bring up this idea that I want to talk to you about cultural unionism, which I think is really fascinating because, you know, of course, the 1860s, Civil War, all this sort of this tumultuous period, sort of people are reconstructing. What does that mean, a cultural unionism? Or how do you interpret that? And where did that idea come from? So context, um, California in the 1850s is drifting hard to the South, capital S South. The state's politics and business community are solidly aligned with the South, so much so that by the end of the decade in this California's 1859 gubernatorial election, uh, variously pro-slavery Democrats, so Democrats who either want to expand slavery into mm-hmm. the West who are or who are just perfectly fine with it existing in whatever form it happens to exist or or want to exist for that matter. 
win 91% of the vote. The Republican candidate wins only 9% of the vote. Wow. He is so insignificant that in the days after the election, San Francisco's largest newspaper spells his name wrong for three straight days in, in, the, in, the, in the vote tally. They call him Sanford, and his name was Leland Stanford, who later goes on to be a somewhat prominent figure. The end of 58 and 59 was a really dramatic and violent year in California politics. Pro-slavery Democrats targeted the three leading anti-slavery Democrats for elimination. They uh, basically picked each of them off in duels and killed them. Wow. Culminating with, at the end of of 1859, the pro-slavery Texan Chief Justice of the California State Supreme Court challenges California's U.S. Senator, an anti-slavery guy, to a duel, basically rigs the duel by fixing the guns, and kills him. Wow. And in response to this, Edward Baker, who was a friend of Abraham Lincoln's from way back in Illinois and who was kind of a co-founder of the California Republican Party, eulogizes Baker, and a year later he gives the most important speech in the history of California in, uh, 10 days before the 1860 election that will eventually elect Lincoln. Baker knows Republicans are losing in California on policy. They're losing in California on slavery. They're losing in California on things like the transcontinental because the Democrats can promise it, even if they never get around to delivering it. And so Baker has this... familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, when we talk about cultural issues mattering in elections, there's a long history of this, right? So Baker has this idea that he's been testing in speeches for a year or two. Near the end of this speech, 10 days before the 1860 election, he says, Californians... And mind you, this is an audience of people that the East didn't want, that the East didn't have a place for. People who didn't see a future for themselves in the agriculturally developed East and really had or thought they had no option but to go West and dig for gold and right. to sell whiskey. And, you know, the, the place no one right. wanted to stay. Everybody thought they'd go back. The end of the world. Yeah, it was totally the end of the world. And Baker says... You, you Californians, you want to align with the North, not the South, because it is the North that writes the nation's history and the nation's poetry and that makes the nation's art. And you should aspire to write that history, to write that poetry and to make that art. The South is only interested in slavery. You should aspire to be cultural contributors. He's telling a bunch of grubby gold mining types this. Wow. And the audience goes nuts. They love it. It was the biggest applause line of the night. And so sitting in Jesse Benton Fremont's box is Thomas Starr King. He says to Jesse, I wish I could move men like that. That whole part of the speech was probably targeted at Star King, who is the one Californian (laughs) at that point with the capacity to create culture. Uh, Five weeks later, five weeks later, the first of Star King's essays about Yosemite runs in the Boston Evening Transcript, the most important kind of sub-radical newspaper in New England. And that's the introduction. That's the first important introduction of Yosemite. So these are all interconnected. I guess part of the all point of your bu- book is the fact that all these characters, the Stanfords and the, you know, my bridges, uh, you know, part of it is because the history is still being understood. Like in your book, these people were all together. It's not like these were sort of isolated islands all the time. Yeah. I mean, these Venn diagrams of people are important. And also the Venn diagrams of how... Northern and Southern culture were enormously Mm -hmm. different. Northern culture by 1861, of course, is dominated by landscape. Landscape metaphors um, in poetry at the time are all about union. Landscape metaphors in painting at the time are all about union, often with kind of people, three people wearing red, white, and blue on the beach. So it's that, that's the coded cultural unionism you're talking about? So what, what Star King realizes is that, and what Baker had realized, was that if we can't compete on policy, we can compete on culture. The great important thing, or we can participate in culture. Right. The great cultural output of the North is oriented around landscape. 
how about if the West makes culture, poetry and art that engages with the Northern tradition, thus building bonds between the North and the West. And so Starr begins to write these essays which are noticed, but they also land over the course of like 80 days when seven states secede. And then the next season, because you had to wait for the snow to melt, that you said you could get into Yosemite, Watkins makes pictures. Mm-hmm. And then those are sent to New York and exhibited in 1862 in December. And then uh, poets and writers from California write for the Atlantic Monthly. Mm-hmm. Star organizes all this and he brings poetry from the North and gives these poetry lecture tours in California. Political bonds were impossible because the right. South dominated California politics. So build cultural bonds. Right. And it works well enough that uh, Lincoln wins California by, what, 600 votes or something? Amazing. 36% of the vote. And then it continues. And we see in Frederick Law Olmsted's... So when, when uh, Yosemite is preserved as a park in 1864, in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah. And the state of California charges Frederick Law Olmsted, who happened to be in the state, with figuring out what this new landscape preserve thing meant. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is a thing that didn't exist anywhere in the world. Right. And I mean, Olmsted was born for this, right? Right. As later became obvious. And his report, which is the first major essay on landscape conservation in the world, repeatedly calls out Watkins, kind of acknowledges this cultural unionism. It's an amazing document that's still kind of thrilling to read to this day. It's interesting because it just brings up the fact the role artists play in sort of this ideology or like the formation of these cultural bonds. Now, there is a chapter, or I mean, not a chapter in this book, but in general, in in the life of Watkins, that is a little more difficult to sort of talk about. And I think particularly because, you know, of course, California wasn't only American. There were, of course, a lot of other groups, including the Spanish were there, but also before that, the indigenous populations. And in your and the book, Russians and the British. The Russia. Too. That's right. That's right. They were there as well. That's true. But, you know, I think the part I'm talking about, of course, is the indigenous uh, inhabitants. And you talk about in a series of photos, the Mendocino photos, you use the term most shameful pictures he ever made. Maybe any 19th century American photographer ever made. So a little bit of context. Yeah. Um, Watkins starts making pictures uh, under his own name in 1858. Mm-hmm. He goes to Yosemite for the first time in 1861. Those Yosemite pictures are introduced and first shown and sent around in 1862. Therefore, in 1863, Watkins looked around and said, hmm, it's time to make some money. And he's looking for a place to go. And a timber baron up in Mendocino, which is about three, three and a half hours north by by car now, San Francisco on the Mm -hmm. California coast, commissions him to come up. We don't know the specifics, as usual, with Watkins. But it seems to have been to make pictures of the timber operation, either to attract investors or maybe a possible sale. We just don't know. Watkins, as ever, used the trip to to make all kinds of pictures, landscapes, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we would now call landscapes, seascapes. This is the introduction of the California coast into American art history on this trip. And so one of the things he photographs up there is the American military presence on the north coast of California. During the Civil War, Lincoln never asked Californians to fight in Eastern theaters. Mm. It was really expensive to get people, I mean, to to put thousands of young men on ships and sail them into Eastern theaters would have been really expensive. Politically, California was interested in controlling its Native American populations, and control is probably the operative word, rounding them up, rounding up Native Americans and putting them in in camps. And this is what... Well, it's ethnic cleansing, really. It, um, there had been... 
a more violent period okay. um, preceding this um, up the California coast in the 1850s. The Bret Hart, kind of the proto-Mark Twain, first came to prominence writing about settler killings of Native Americans up on the north coast in the 1850s, stories which remain full of shock and awe and ugh, horror, so much so that Hart was run out of town and missed being tarred and feathered by about five minutes. This is the same country Watkins is in okay. um, in 63. And so the U.S. Army, um, because there was enormous redwood forests up the north coast, so there was enormous timber wealth. And so the, you know, these, these California units of the U.S. Army, under U.S. Army control, create a fort called Fort Bragg, which Watkins mm-hmm. pictures. And then they round up Native Americans into what in the then contemporary vernacular was called the rancherie. You know, it's, it's a sort of reservation, but not really. It's just a piece of land where people could be warehoused. It was something of a rape camp, um, referred to such at the time. Mm-hmm. The American military operations in the Great Plains states that would become so notorious later in the 1860s and the 1870s had their origin here in California, particularly on the North Coast in the early 1860s. So Watkins not only makes pictures of the fort, but of this reservation camp several miles away. And they are horrific pictures. These are people who don't want to be photographed, who turn their back. So when Watkins is setting up a camera, if it's his big camera, you know, it's a five foot tall, 150 pound thing. These are people who turn their back to him. Watkins makes mostly, but not entirely, stereographs of Native Americans. And I'm using Native Americans rather than specific tribal units, because this is kind of an area between groups. And so we don't know specifically which. But what I find most not not shocking in the context of the time, but revealing about the time. Stereographs were, were penny entertainment. Right. Stereographs were these little cards with two pictures, and you put them in a viewer, and everything looked three D. Yeah, right. Them. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're still very cool. They were you know cheap entertainment. Watkins makes pictures of people being treated badly, of people being degraded by <sighs> the military and the American presence. Um, people turning their back to him into penny entertainment and sells them. They're very hard to look at to this day. So how do we resolve that? I mean, I don't think it's unique to Watkins. I think this is true of many artists. How do we resolve But it's worth noting that there were artists who had an enormously different level of respect for Native Americans. Uh, Catlin, Alexander Gardner. Now, granted, they weren't working in California, although Gardner does visit California. But even in the context of the time, the Watkins pictures are inexplicable. So... How do you see Watkins within this bigger, I guess, ambition of American imperialism? I mean, at this point, it was sort of forming this sort of colonial attitude towards the West, too, because I think a lot of artists find themselves in this sort of role, right? I mean, it's like sort of the old story, particularly Western art history of artists are kind of going along with sort of the civilizations they're part of. And in this case, I mean, we're talking about a landscape that has been kind of ethnically cleansed of populations and he's sort of taking these photos and sort of sharing them with the rest of the world. Now, was there any sense of kind of how he saw any of these dichotomies? I guess there are two two groups of pictures I'd point out. One, uh, much later in his career, Watkins makes a number of pictures, medium format of the Chinese presence right. in San Francisco, which are the most sensitive, thoughtful, interesting pictures of the Chinese anybody made in San Francisco. They're definitely intended for the tourist market, mm-hmm. but at a time when um, Congress was passing things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, right. they're humanizing at a time when dehumanization was was the norm. And the second body of work is Watkins's California Mission series, which he begins in the mid to late 1870s. 
The missions were Catholic missions built by the Spanish in the late 18th century, roughly the same time as America was working through the Declaration of Independence and such. The Spanish were moving up into California and building these missions. And in California's visual culture before Watkins, the missions are sites of imagined colonialist fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, They exist in illustration and in painting as, you know, places where happy white people can dance with dark-skinned women. And, I mean, it's stuff that today's just looks kind of ludicrous and fantastical. But they were intended to be fantastical. I mean, this was an imagined golden past that was sexied up. Watkins makes a remarkable series over the course of two trips uh, up and down California of the missions. And he pictures the missions as they are, Mm -hmm. uh, which was often falling apart, in harsh landscapes and makes the point about how difficult it was, would have been for anything to have um, survived there and and thrived there agriculturally. Uh, They are pictures that show, that hint anyway, uh, that suggest how difficult and challenging and even brutal life could be at the missions. And they really changed how Californian Americans thought about the missions. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, yes, that Robert Louis Stevenson, writes about the missions shortly after Watkins photographs them. um, And Stevenson writes about them as Watkins pictures them. And that really began the... How would he have seen the photos, do you think? Stevenson? Yeah. I don't know that Stevenson did. I just just mean chronologically afterward. But he sure might have. So before he becomes Stevenson, before he writes Treasure Island? What's the book? (laughs) I know we're all... uh, Not Robinson Crusoe, no. He might have done that. Yeah, that maybe it was that. I think that's right. Me me and children's literature. (laughs) Of course, we both got it wrong. Stevenson is best known for Treasure Island and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in other novels. Oh, well, back to the interview. But Stevenson is traveling in California. He has spent some time at the Carmel Mission. He gets married in California. His honeymoon mm-hmm. is on a mountain in Northern California. Uh. So he's there. But Watkins' mission pictures really begin to change how California sees and thinks about the state's own history, the Spanish presence in the state, and through how difficult the missions and the landscape look, how life there must have been. So now this is a curious detail. You discover that you had a connection to Watkins. Now, how do you want to tell this story? Because this is a pretty incredible story. It's almost like the stuff of, <laughs> you know, that sort of like a Hollywood movie plot twist or something. All of a sudden you were having a conversation with your father, I believe, about this gentleman called William H. Lawrence, who was the chief executive of San Mateo's Spring Valley Waterworks. I was, um, so I started writing this book in early 2012 in this conversation with my father was, you know, three and a half years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is mostly a story about what a poor historian and researcher I am. <laughs> I was um, in Pasadena. I spent a year at the Huntington Library researching Watkins and using that as a base to travel mm-hmm. up and down the coast. And I had called my father on the phone uh, one night and said, I'm bored here in Pasadena, Dad. I'm coming up to the Bay Area to do some work at the Bancroft Library at Berkeley. Uh, you want to come down, I'll buy you dinner, we'll have a good time. Yep. And, you know, I think normally when a son calls his father with something like that, one expects to hear, oh, it'll be so good to see you, son. And my father's like, haven't you already done all that crap? <laughs> and, and, and so I was looking for a way to explain to my father what the heck I was doing. And I said, well, you know, I have this list of, you know, 150, 200 names, and I'm just going down and researching each person to try to put 
the diagram of Watkins's life back together. And that day at the Huntington, I'd been looking at an 1880 picture Watkins made in Arizona and Watkins's wagon where he kept all of his chemicals that we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier yeah. is in one of the pictures, probably mostly for scale. And it says on the side of the wagon, C.E. Watkins, Yosemite Art Gallery, W.H. Lawrence, proprietor. So I explained to my father that I knew a little bit about this Lawrence guy, that he was, um, Watkins lost everything in early 1876 after the collapse of the Western economy. He'd gotten a loan or a gift to expand his gallery through no fault of his own. When somebody else died, that debt was sold off and liquidated because somebody saw ways to make money from Watkins' class plate negatives. And so I thought I knew that this Lawrence guy had put up the money and provided the management expertise to run the gallery that Watkins established in around 1876 or mm-hmm. 7, and that continues for the next you know six or eight or 10 years. So I explained all this to my father, and I said, so I'm going to go look up this W.H. Lawrence guy. My father doesn't say anything for a minute, and I'm on a cell phone, so I, I think the call has died. And eventually my father says, that guy William H. Lawrence? And I was like, God, that's weird. I'm like, Yeah. And my father then says, is this the William H. Lawrence of the Spring Valley Water Company? And I'm like, whoa, like what's going on here? I'm like, yes, how do you know that? And my father again doesn't say anything for a minute. And I think the call has dropped again. And he says, well, that's your great, great grandfather. My middle name is Lawrence. I mean, I had never put this together. <laughs> you know, I had never. Wow. And so I'm just, you know, lying there in bed or laying there in bed, whichever it is that you do. And um, I'm like, Jesus Christ. You know, it, it just took me days to wrap. That's insane. My head around this thing. That's insane. And 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 so then, of course, the next... And so Lawrence is an enormously... So your family has deep roots in California, too. Yeah, I'm fifth generation. Okay. Um, Lawrence is, an, is, is not a minor figure in California's history. Um, he's a medium figure. He's, he was very wealthy, yeah. prominent enough in San Francisco business that when the king of, of the Sandwich Islands, today's Hawaii, visits a major trading partner with California, it's Lawrence who shows him around. Spring Valley provided 95% of San Francisco's water. It maybe has the highest profit margin of any company in the state. Why do you think like your 90%. dad never told you? He didn't know. Remember, everything was destroyed in 1906. Right. All we have of Lawrence, we have some later stuff from Spring Valley after 1906, mm-hmm. some company histories that refer to the earlier years of the company. We have Watkins's pictures of Spring Valley facilities in the mid-1860s forward. So I had to figure out why this Lawrence guy would be interested in Watkins and why a wealthy guy would want to help and run a photographer's and artist's so, gallery. So are there any Watkins photographs in your family? Yeah. So after my father and I had this conversation, I think I ended up not going up that weekend. I think I was so kind of, I, I don't think I went up for another week. Um, so my father has a yurt. My father lives in Southern Oregon. He has a yurt. That's what you do in Southern Oregon, right? Sure. And so a day or two later, he emailed me and said, so I found a a photograph of Lawrence, but I don't think it has anything to do with Watkins. And it was like a little kind of index card sized picture. And so I I, I pictured my father holding this photograph in his hand. And I said, well, turn it over, see if it says anything about Watkins Gallery. He's like, yeah, there's nothing there. And and all all I'm thinking of, this has to be a Watkins picture. And so I knew that in the portraits made by Watkins's studio, his gallery between 72 and 75, that they were embossed with a cursive script, Watkins, in the lower right. And so I said to my father, move your thumb, because I was just guessing that was how he was holding it. And my father just goes, son of a gun. And sure enough, it was it was a Watkins. It's the only one we've got. I mean, the other amazing part of the story That's is, great. so on my father's side of the family, there are the Lawrences and there were the Greens. And of course, I'm a Green. I mean, my, you know, that's the name that has come down to me. 
through work Watkins made for the president of the Bank of California, Darius Ogden Mills, a New Yorker who made several fortunes, uh, was probably one of the richest, 10 or so richest men in America at the time. Watkins came to know the guy who ran Mills's cattle operation, a former California state legislator, and I think an attorney named Alfred Green. When Watkins made his work for the Spring Valley Water Company, Spring Valley's property abutted the Mills Green cattle ranching operation. It's entirely possible, not probable, but entirely possible that it was Watkins who introduced to each other my two great-great-grandfathers on my father's side of the family. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, there's like a personal history woven into all this. So now, in terms of art history, what do you think Watkins' role is? Because, you know, this is a bigger issue that we're encountering now. Now that people are sort of being rediscovered, their rightful place, their sort of role is being, you know, at the same time, there was literally a hundred years of where he was sort of not part of the art history, you know? I think that's true, but I think that the first generation of late 20th century Watkins scholars oversold that. I mean, Ansel Adams is including Watkins's in shows at MoMA in the 1940s. Right? Oh, okay. So then it's not as... Um, the major photography book of the late 1930s plays up Watkins prominently. So he was not unknown. I think Watkins's role in art history is, is a couple things. One, the American interest in landscape was a regionalism, not in the 20th century use of the term, mm-hmm. but it was confined... Yep to the Hudson River and up northeast. Watkins extends that tradition into the West, and it is the thing that then dominates Western art, Western American art, into you know the 1990s. Right. Over and over again. You know, in academic art history of the last several generations, there is a painting silo over here, there is a photography silo over here, and never the twain shall meet. Right. But that's not how art worked in America in the 1860s and 70s and even 1880s, photographers and painters were buds. They they riffed on each other's work. They borrowed things as specific as trees and viewpoints and as inspecific as concepts from each other. There was a great show at the National Gallery a year or two ago called East of the Mississippi, you know, because photography of the American West is far more famous than yeah. photography of the American East because it's better. And uh, which is fine. The show wasn't arguing otherwise, but the show included in it a bunch of paintings arguing that Eastern painters and photographers were talking to each other in their work, just as Watkins was with painters in the West. And I think one of the things where there's a lot of work left to be done is on that back and forth on that interplay. Yeah, I think I mean, I love that part, too, of this is sort of like you bring in all these different threads because California and the West was really you had sort of unexpected figures, you know, that sort of interacted. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. You know, in my own research, I sort of discovered, you know, there were Ottoman photographers that showed up in California, you know? There are, um, you know, there is just an enormous amount of research that grad it's students crazy. in PhD. But, you know, it's possibly through Watkins that photography, at least large format photography, is introduced into Japan. There is a thriving back and forth in artists and photographers, mostly photographers, between, say, Hong Kong and California, as early wow. as the late late 1850s, early 1860s. That's incredible. One of the big things in scholarship, um, American scholarship in the last decade, has been the transatlantic world and recreating the multinational, the multi-continental yeah. Atlantic world. And in the art area, that's beginning to happen with, with the trans-Pacific world. Right. Not just in United States art, but also in terms of Mexican art, Spanish colonial art, and its dialogue with 
the East, with Asia. So there's there's a lot there left to be done. Well, I think particularly because California art history is often seen as sort of like coming from the East, where in reality it was sort of a much more rich cauldron of ideas and populations and uh, people. And in a sense, a lot of it did come from the East in the sense that, of course, that's where a lot of the Americans came from, right? Mm -hmm. But most of them went back. I mean, Thomas Hill goes back. Virgil Williams, you know, two of the most prominent early California painters, goes back. Watkins stays. William Keith stays. You know, of the 19th century bunch, they're the two prominent ones who stay. Why did your family stay? Ha! Any idea? After William H. Lawrence ran Spring Valley, his son ran Spring Valley. It was a wealthy, nepotistic Got it. thing, and they just stuck around until I was the one who left. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you, Tyler. This was really interesting. And, you know, I think you've done a great service in terms of contributing a hefty book about Carlton Watkins to art history. So thanks again. Thanks for having me, and thanks for your interest. Carlton Watkins, Making the American West, is out now through the University of California Press. A special thanks to Mark Pritchard of Warp Records for providing the music to this episode. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. <laughs>